We were looking at verse 14 in our series of one another's that have been the focus of our attention during the communion occasions. But rather than looking at the sort of the application of the one another in the washing of feet, making the point that yes, we could take off each other's socks and shoes and wash each other's feet, but if we were to do that in a regular practice, it would just become something that would be normal and there wouldn't really be anything behind it. As we saw this morning, the reason why Jesus is talking here about washing one another's feet is because of the fact that there hadn't been a washing of the feet of these men, and that was because there wasn't a host or a slave to do so. And that because of a dispute that had arisen among them that had been ongoing, Luke chapter 22, over who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, they all sat, as it were, looking at each other, saying, well, I'm not going to do this because we're having this discussion, debate, dispute about who is the greatest, and certainly it would be below me if I, in the midst of this conversation, adding and making the point that, well, there's a reason why I should be maybe considered the greatest if I was to get up there and wash your feet. This menial task of washing the feet wouldn't align itself with the assertion I'm making that I'm the greatest. Pride. Pride engulfing their hearts. And we considered how Jesus addressed that pride. Through a sevenfold step, he communicated to them humility. He took off, or he rose first from where he was sitting. He laid aside his outer garment. He took a towel. He tied it around his waist. He then poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that he had around his waist. What they considered demeaning, menial, the incarnate Son of God, the one who knew that he was going back to the Father, did what they thought was beyond them to do. And so he shone a light on their pride. And we saw that that arose, John 13, verse 1, because of his love for them. How that he loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Because of his love that he humbled himself in this task. A love that, showed, that saw him wash the feet of Peter who would deny him. One, as it were, in the church who had professed, and we'll be looking more at what that, that, that event within the, the micro, that microscopic event within the entirety of the room that evening in the moment. But he washed the feet of Peter who would deny him. And more than that, he washed the feet of Judas, his betrayer. Humility. Humbleness. Yes, the church is to be steadfast in the truth. It is to be deliberate and intentional in the declaration of the truth. But we should manifest 
humility and love when dealing with each other and no less with our enemies who would have us persecuted to death itself. There is no place in the mind or the heart of the one who professes Jesus Christ for a belligerent, aggressive attitude. But there's more going on here than this exercise, this wonderful example of humility. And I want to draw your attention to the verses 6 through 10, where Jesus is dealing specifically with Peter. For I think there is in this something of value for us this evening in considering what it means to be cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of us sat at the table of the Lord this morning and we partook of that wonderful sacrament that speaks of cleansing, that speaks of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. But the partaking of the sacrament isn't the end of our pursuit of cleansing, is it? And I want to draw out of this, these verses 6 to 10 this evening this matter of cleansing. Peter is offended, isn't he? Whenever Jesus, with his wrapped towel around his waist, approaches him with the basin full of water. We read in verse 6 that Peter says, Lord, do not wash my feet. Very categoric. It's very resistant. But note that his resistance is not because he doesn't love the Lord. His resistance is more to do with the fact that is, this is not appropriate. See how he, adeemed, how he speaks of Jesus. He says to him, Lord, he just doesn't say in an offhand way, don't you go washing my feet. It's not that he's belligerent. He's shocked, as they all are presumably, by what is happening. They have all sat there. They've all looked at each other. They've all questioned each other. Who is going to get up? Who is going to, who is going to wash uh, my feet, let alone Jesus' feet? You would have thought that some of them would have thought, well, I'm not washing anybody else's feet, but I'll get up and I'll wash Jesus' feet at least. And here Jesus comes to Peter, and Peter's not going to have Jesus to wash his feet. Why? Because this is wholly inappropriate for Jesus to wash his feet. That's a good thing. The man is, is understanding that Jesus is the Son of God. And why would Jesus demean himself to do this? Isn't that a good thing that Peter says this? Wouldn't we have been surprised given Peter's understanding of Jesus if, if Peter had said, certainly wash my feet. Certainly. After all, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, in the district of Caesarea Philippi, do we not find that when Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And the response comes, well, some say that you are John the Baptist. 
Verse 14 of chapter 16 of Matthew's Gospel. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets. Then Jesus looks at them and says, But who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who answers. Not James, not John, not any of the other apostles. It's Peter. And Peter says, you are the Christ. That's an astonishing statement. That's the first time that any Jewish man or woman had declared that Jesus was the Messiah. We read that and we just think, well, that's ordinary. That's understandable. We're reading that back now. We understand that Jesus was the Messiah. But for the apostles on that day, there had never been a public declaration, a public expression, a public announcement of the fact that the person standing before them as Jesus was the Messiah. Wholly unique. Earth-shattering. The angels in heaven must have stepped back and thought, it has been spoken. Jesus is the Messiah. A man on the earth has announced the Messiahship of Jesus. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That shows us the degree of the magnitude of this declaration. For flesh and blood has not, re- has not revealed this to you. In other words, you didn't work this out yourself. This isn't a collective decision that you have been brought by the rest of the apostles and nominated to come and announce. Flesh and blood didn't work this out, Jesus says to them. He says, but my Father who is in heaven. So this declaration of Peter's came through his lips, but not from his mind and not from his heart, except through the leading of the Spirit and the guiding of the Father. Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church in the gates of hell. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Peter knew who Jesus was. He had announced it. So it's wholly understandable that when confronted by Jesus, kneeling at his feet, wanting to wash his feet, that Peter would say, Lord, don't, don't do this. Don't do this. The Lord responds, verse 7, with an acknowledgement that this may not be easy to understand, notwithstanding the fact that what he is doing is going to speak to the disciples in some way about their pride. That's obviously a principal import of what he is doing, working back from wash one another's feet, because that's a symbol of the fact you understand that the pride in your heart must be addressed. The pride in your heart must be addressed because here you are in dispute at this last Passover sharing it with me. Notwithstanding what Jesus is teaching them illustratively through these seven steps. But there is more. There's more in Jesus is alluding to that when he says that What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. That gives us an insight into the fact that while they are understanding that the washing of the feet is speaking to their pride because of their refusal to wash the feet, that Jesus is actually addressing something deeper. Even more deep 
than the issue of addressing the pride in their hearts. That Peter doesn't accept Jesus' request for him to accept this. Peter doesn't say, okay, Jesus, I don't understand it fully. You've told me that I don't understand it fully, and I'm willing to sit on that and wait until it's made clear. Peter says, because he's still thinking, you see, about the practical reality of what's happening. You shall never wash my feet. So it moves in verse 6 from Lord, do not do this because of the greatness of your being to the fact of I'm never, ever going to let you do this. Initially, he's confused. Now he is, without faith, rejecting. And by faith, I mean not accepting the words of Jesus. And of course, this isn't the first time that we know that Peter rejected the command or the words of Jesus. Because later in that same passage in Matthew 16, whenever Peter had announced by the leading of the Spirit that Jesus was the Messiah, and the Father or the Son had declared that He was the rock upon which the church would be established, we read verse 21, from that time, so this is not immediately, but this is near the time. From that time, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus began to show His disciples He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed. Now, this was, this was mind-blowing. When these men looked into the face of Jesus and saw this 32-year-old man, and now they're hearing that He's going to go to Jerusalem, He's going to expose Himself to the opposition of the chief priests, the elders and the scribes. Something He doesn't have to do. He doesn't have to take on the men in Jerusalem. He can avoid them. He can work around them. He can stay around the Sea of Galilee. He can be there. He doesn't have to go into the, 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 the teaching high point of the Jewish religion in Jerusalem. He doesn't have to confront them. But now he says that he must go to Jerusalem. He's compelled to go to Jerusalem. And how does Peter and James and John take this? And not just go to Jerusalem to confront them, but to suffer and to ultimately be killed. What an absolute waste of a human life. What an absolute waste of a gifted man's ability. Here he is healing hundreds of people, and he's talking about going to Jerusalem and to be killed. Here he is teaching with authority that people are sitting listening to him and astonished at what they're hearing. Not sitting listening to the usual teaching of the, the scribes and the priests and the same mundane, rote, Continual statements that just sing along week after week and make no difference to anybody or everybody because everybody has heard the same thing before and heard it again. And it just goes on and on and on and on. No, Jesus was dynamic and powerful because He was speaking the words of God and life. 
And here he is talking about going to be killed. And we read that Peter takes him aside. He says to him, Jesus, can I have a wee word? Don't want to say it in front of everybody, but can you, can you come with me a wee minute? Because of, of something I want, I want to tell you. Note, he doesn't ask Jesus to clarify what he's saying. It tells us that he began to rebuke Jesus. Now, is that not remarkable? The man, the first human being on earth to pronounce from his lips that Jesus is the Messiah is here rebuking Jesus a short term after it. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. How categoric can you get? You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But I'm going to tell you something. You're not going to Jerusalem. You're not going to suffer at the hands of the priests and the chief priests and the scribes. You're not going to be killed. And you're not going to be raised on the third day. He doesn't say how he's going to make sure it doesn't happen. But he is certain. Peter is certain it's not going to happen. This shall never happen to you. No doubt. No, well, Jesus, are you sure you want to do this? No is this possible? Is there a reason why you're saying is this? Is there any way we can avoid this? Can you tell us what's going on in your heart? Can you tell us what the trouble is? Can you tell us why you're so mentally distressed that you think you have to go to Jerusalem and suffer and you have to be killed? Can you share? Can you open up and tell us what it is? And we'll all sit together, the 13 of us, and we'll, have a, we'll pray about it. We'll take it to the Father. None of that. It's just a bold, brass, arrogant, profound statement, profound in the sense of its stupidity. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus turns and looks him straight in the eye. We're told he turns to him and says, Satan, get behind me. Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. There's nothing nice about that. And so here, months later, a year and more later, we are in the upper room. And Peter is once again protesting at Jesus about something he will never do. You would think that he had learned the first time. I mean, not everybody heard from the lips of Jesus, get thee behind me, Satan. And here he is, and he's saying to Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus doesn't reiterate the statement, get thee behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, but he says to him, verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. We have no relationship if you don't have me wash your feet. Now, that's a shocking statement. You're not part of me. 
And here he is, rebuked and rebuked again. I wonder, I wonder if in your life you have need to be taught a lesson twice before you learn it. I suppose like me, you would like to think, well, if I'm taught it once, that'll be enough. But is that true? When God has laid his finger on the point of his finger on something in your life, when he's shone a light directly to such a degree that you've said, well, I've learned that now, only to find out sometime later that you haven't learned it. Or maybe you did learn it, you just learned a way around it. And you think to yourself, I thought I learned that, but I haven't. Am I the only one that's ever experienced that in my life, in your life? Have you experienced that? That Jesus has come to you with authority and power through his word. And it's just not a sort of tangential little strike that you sort of put in the back of your mind. You think, well, I'm going to have to remember that. That's important. That's something that really is worth thinking. No, I'm talking about a statement that's left you absolutely floored. It, is, it has come to you with such power and the power of the Spirit in such a way that you think, I will never, ever do that again, or I will begin doing that. How many people uh, come under conviction about something that they should do, should do, and say, I should do this, but don't actually do it. And here, this man has been rebuked by Jesus, not once, but twice. And there's nothing benevolent about what Jesus says when he says to him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. This is not a say something but say nothing statement. Jesus wasn't very good at saying something and saying nothing statements. He could be polite, gracious, and kind, but there was always an eternal point to everything that he said. Are you open to hearing Jesus speak to you not just tonight, but when you come to the Word of God. When you're reading the Word of God, are you reading it for academic purpose? When you come this week to study and prepare, and please, please prepare to come to the fellowship groups. Don't just come there and think that the leader will unpack it and you'll give some degree of wisdom that will come into your head as you just sit there. You have an opportunity. The number of verses that are going to be studied are not huge. We're not studying a chapter of the Bible. We're studying four or five verses. At least read it beforehand. At least put yourself under it. Take a few minutes, read the notes that are in the booklet. It's not, that's not the font of all wisdom, but there's a wee bit of time that's been spent there. And a wee bit of time will help you at least think about it. At least it'll lead you maybe on to another thought. Go to it first yourself. If you're stuck, go there. Whatever you do, prepare. You'll get out of it. What you put in, you know that in terms of your life. You put nothing in. What can you expect to get back? Nothing. So you give yourself to it. But when you give yourself to it, you give yourself to it, you ask God to speak to you through it. And when He speaks to you, remember what we sang in the opening psalm? I'll hear what God the Lord will say. 
I'll hear what God the Lord will say. And it's a hearing for a purpose. It's a hearing not just to hear it. It's a hearing with a view to doing it. And here Jesus has spoken to this man. And and Peter instantaneously responds. No hesitation. And Peter says, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. This shows a man's love for Jesus. Shows his love for Jesus. He doesn't keep pressing the rejection button. He's saying, I do love you. I'm confused. I'm misunderstanding it. I'm impulsive. I don't always get it right. But I'll tell you, I will listen. And he says, if you want to clean my feet, then clean my head and my hands as well. There's receptiveness. Now we know because we can deduce the reality of what Jesus is speaking about here. And it revolves around this word clean. Now there is a sense in which Jesus is talking about the cleaning of their feet physically because he's doing that. But there's more than just a cleaning of their feet physically. When Jesus is talking about cleaning in verse 10, when he says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not everyone. What Jesus is saying here is not just a cleaning of the feet, it's a cleaning of the heart and the mind. That's what this word clean is about. And I want you to to think for a few moments about this word clean. Yeah, the seven steps to humility has a great purpose in showing this, these men their need to show humility to one another because of love. But here, here Jesus is talking about cleanness of the heart. How do we know? Well, we know because at the end of verse 10, he says, you are clean, but not every one of you. Well, who's he talking about? He's talking about Judas. So was Judas's feet not as dirty as the rest? Was Judas not wearing sandals, probably the tight that everybody else was wearing? Is Jesus saying, you're all clean? And he's thinking about Judas's feet not being, needing wash because they're clean. There's, that can't be it. It can't be it. And of course, he goes on in verse 11 and, and underscores that that can't be the reason for he says, for he knew who was going to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So it was not about Judas's feet. It was about Judas's heart. And so the cleanness that Jesus is talking about when he talks about being completely clean is a spiritual cleanliness. Peter is just thinking about his feet. And he's thinking about his heads and his hands. He wants Jesus to wash him in the basin of water because if Jesus wants to wash his feet, Okay, he's got over the misunderstanding, the miscomprehension that this is not something Jesus should be doing. He understands that Jesus says, well, if I don't wash you, you're not part of me. And he addresses the issue that, that um, because I want a share of Jesus, I want a part of Jesus, I want a relationship with Jesus, then he wants to put himself under the cleansing of Jesus' hands and his feet. But Jesus is talking about more than that. And so we see that in the talking of Jesus, more than that, that here he's bringing them to think of the cleansing of the heart. And I wonder 
Many here this evening are happy to have their feet clean, but not their hearts clean. Are happy to have an outward cleansing, as it were, of sitting in the house of God and, and being like everyone else. But in terms of the heart, in terms of the heart and the mind, is there a purity there? A deep purity, a real purity, or is it the case that there's a deep uncleanness, an uncleanness from conception that cannot be washed away with water? We believe in the sacrament of baptism for those in the covenant and their infant children. Why? Because we believe it's a sign of cleansing and forgiveness. But we do not then presume that the child baptized as a Christian. We don't believe in baptismal regeneration. That's an unbiblical lie. And what Jesus is talking here about in this washing is ongoing sanctification. You are clean. If they are clean, why is he talking about the need for them to be washed? Set aside for a moment the necessity of the washing of their feet because of the dustiness of the ground, the sandals they are wearing, the fact that they're reclining at a table. No one has done it. And he's teaching them a lesson by the seven steps that they are to humble themselves and to seek others and the good of others better than themselves. Set that aside for a moment. And think about this cleansing and what it represents. For we know in Exodus chapter 30 that this cleansing was associated with the work of the priests. And when they would come and to serve in the house of the Lord. Exodus 30, the Lord said to Moses, You shall make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, and which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they will not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and his offspring throughout his generations. They have to prepare to come into the presence of God. And is there not a, a need for us to prepare? Prepare to come into the presence of God. For those of us who are clean, as Jesus speaks to Peter and says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. He's talking about the fact that you don't need me to bathe you. You probably have had a bath or a sh well, not a shower, whatever you've had today, Peter. You only need your feet cleaned because of the dustiness of the ground that you've walked on. You don't need a full bath. You are clean. And so those of us who are in Christ are clean. But in our interaction with the world and our sinful nature, our feet, our spiritual feet become dusty. And there's a need for them to be washed afresh, to be cleansed afresh. 
And that needs to be done by Jesus. And take care lest you think that you're cleaner than what you are. Take care lest you think that you don't need to come under the cleansing power of Jesus day and daily. Don't think that because you've been cleansed in the regenerating blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you've been cleansed and there's no need for you to be cleansed again. These men had to have their feet cleaned. Jesus washes their feet. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. He needs his feet washed because the feet are dirty and dusty. And you and me need our hearts and our minds washed before we come into the presence of the Lord so that we can be ready. These men needed their feet washed so that they could sit at the table and partake of the supper. We need our hearts and our minds washed so that we can come into the presence of God and enjoy the fellowship that we have with God without being set apart because of our sin. And none of us should feel at any time that my spiritual feet are clean or they're not. None of us should look into our hearts and say there's no spiritual need for me to be clean. There's always a spiritual need for me to be clean. There's always a spiritual need for you to be clean. Because what does Jesus pray on the same night in John chapter 17? Later on in the evening when He's in the garden and He's with the Father and He's offering up that prayer, He says in verse 17 of 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate them that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Jesus says, they're going to live in the world. I will redeem them. But they need to be made pure. And that means of being made pure is with, through the Word. That's why the life of this church is established, grounded in, and arises from the Word of God. You have been chosen before the foundation of the world to be predestined to the conformity to be like Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8. You've been chosen by God to be like Jesus. To be like Jesus, you need the regenerating, renewing work of the Holy Spirit. And then you need the cleansing work of Jesus in your life every day through His Word. Did you hear that? You need it every day. If you're going to become like Jesus, you're not going to get it on a Sabbath morning. And I delight in the fact that you're in this house tonight. I genuinely do. It's a joy to this minister's heart for you to come and hear the Word of God and to bring your children with you. And that's a wonderful thing because faith comes through the hearing of the Word of God. Cleansing comes through the Word of God as Paul writes to the church at Ephesians and he says, and it's always interesting because you know, there are those who take these passages and rightly so because they're addressed to the husbands and wives in the church and they have application. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her that He may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. And ministers will preach that and say, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. And then they'll put a period there, a stop. But they should go on and say that He might sanctify her 
Why did Jesus want to sanctify her? Because he wanted her to be pure. Husbands are to love their wives that they may be pure in Christ. And how did Jesus sanctify her, his bride? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. With the Word. The washing is with the Word. So that he himself might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless and without blemish. We want to stand in the presence of God. We want to be holy and blameless. Jesus is wanting to wash us with His Word. He wants us to shower in His Word. He wants us to be bathed in His Word. He wants us to be immersed in His Word. But we need to come and hear it like you're hearing it tonight. We need to come and hear it during the week. As I trust you're exposing yourself to His Word during the week. That He will purify you. He will cleanse you. He will make you holy. Holy is not ticking a box about certain practices. Holiness is not about doing certain things just because that's what Christian does, Christians do. There's a whole beautiful world of interaction with Jesus. There's a whole beautiful world of being cleansed, of having, it must have been an amazing thing that night for those men to have Jesus come at their feet and wash their feet. Imagine the eternal Son of God bending down with this towel around his waist, bending down at their feet and washing their feet, having his hands touch their feet and wash them. Would they ever forget that? I wonder, did they look when he was on the cross and saw the blood pouring down from his, across his feet because of the nails that had pierced his ankles? Did they think, I just wish I could go and wash his feet. And he washed my feet. My brother and sister in Christ, you can have Jesus cleanse you every day. Cleanse you every day of the sin that's in you. Wash you. You don't need to be bathed in it all. But you do need to be washed. And if there's any of you tonight that haven't experienced the bathing, please come. Come to Him. Ask Him to wash you head and feet and all. That you might be cleansed for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is cleansing full and free. We pray that we would understand what Jesus was doing on this day in respect of humility, arising out of love, but also in respect of the lesson about cleansing the heart and the mind. We pray that there's none in here tonight, no child, no adult, who will not receive that cleansing of new life in Christ. And we pray that we would move from seeing Bible reading as a good thing a Christian does 
to being a necessity. An absolute necessity. And just as we wouldn't go without cleaning our teeth for a week, or washing our face for a week, or washing our hands for a week, So we pray that this week we will not go a day without sitting under Christ and his cleansing and the work of the Spirit through his word in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.